Digital media is everywhere. It surrounds us. And most of us have no idea of the impact of digital media on our lives, on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, and the amount of money that's being spent. And today, on episode 263 of CXO Talk, we are exploring the secret life of digital media. And I want to say thank you to Livestream before we go further. Go to livestream.com slash CXO Talk, and they'll give you a discount on their plans. Livestream supplies our video streaming infrastructure, and they're great, and they're supporters of CXO Talk. And by George, that's a good enough reason to go check it out. Livestream.com slash CXO Talk. So, I'm Michael Krigsman. I'm an industry analyst and the host of CXO Talk, and I'm so thrilled to welcome back a repeat guest, Anurag Harsh, who is a top executive at Ziff Davis. Ziff Davis is one of the very largest media publishers, technical media publishers in the world on the face of the planet today, and Anurag helped build that business. And so without further ado, Anurag Harsh, how are you doing? Michael, uh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, Anurag, it's great to see you again. Uh, Please tell us about Ziff Davis. I mean, Ziff Davis is a subsidiary of J2 Global. We're a leading global digital media company operating in four verticals, uh, in technology, in gaming, healthcare, um, and shopping. Uh, Our brands are PC Mag, Speed Test, Extreme Tech, Geek, Toolbox, IGN, Everyday Health, What to Expect, AskMenOffers.com, Tech Bargains, eMedia, and Salesify. Um, and what we do is we produce and distribute premium content um, across multiple platforms and devices. We deliver advertising, performance marketing, data services, and licensing solutions to thousands of clients worldwide. Uh, we publish in 25 languages across 114 countries. Okay, well, we are going to explore a lot of these topics, but let's begin, Anurag, share with us what is the state of digital media, digital publishing today? What are the what are the key trends that you're seeing that we need to know about? Digital media and the you know, the advertising landscape is is staggeringly complex. You know, let's start with some of the misnomers that people have about the landscape. Um, smartphone growth um, is slowing. You know, everybody thinks that, you know, it's all about mobile and smartphones. And therefore, a lot of the digital media publishers are publishing to smartphones. Of course, they should do that. But what they don't realize is a smartphone, global smartphone shipments actually just grew 3% this year compared to 10% last year. And that's something that's important. So in order to build a business, a digital media business, you need to understand the landscape and who your target customer is and where they're actually browsing, right? So the other thing that that is important to understand is the total internet users um, in the world right, um, have, have only grown 10% this year. But guess what? That's flat year over year. Last year, it was also 10%. So although it's promising because it's growing 10%, but it grew about the same as last year. So essentially, year over year, it's flat. So it's not increasing that much. Uh, the other thing that's happening, and you can see that in iPhone sales, um, because you know, you're targeting Android and iPhone devices when you're developing your content, smartphones are actually hitting saturation. Right, smartphone shipment growth has dramatically declined um, in the last couple of years, and it's only three percent this year. 
Uh, what that indicates to me is that almost everyone who really wants or needs a smartphone has one. And so people are not really upgrading as much. Um, the other thing that's happening when you think about the internet uh, usage growth is, is at least in North America, you know, adults are spending a lot of time every day, as we all know, about five or six hours a day on the internet. And that's about three hours per day on just mobile compared to, you know, maybe it was like 45 or 50 minutes um, a few years ago. What's interesting here is this, because as, as you're digital media publishers, you're thinking about public, publishing content, desktop usage, and this is the important point, has only declined slightly, indicating it's more of an addition of mobile than a shift to mobile. And this is the key point. Desktop usage has declined slightly. It's not, you know, it's not like it's just going away. Uh, and so that's something that, you know, people need to think about that it's an addition of mobile than a shift to mobile. The other thing that's happening is the on the online total advertising spend, because all digital media business is fundamentally advertising driven, uh, different forms of advertising. It could be commerce, it could be display, it could be affiliate, but it's, it's all bundled under advertising, right? So the total online ad spend, it's growing steadily. And mobile obviously has now overtaken the desktop in ad dollars, um, just it has with, you know, usage of time. So that's an important thing. But what's going on is people are spending a third of their time, uh, their media time, as I'd like to call it, on mobile. Um, but what's going on is that it's, it's for whatever reason, the brands are not spending as much as mobile. It only receives um, a fifth of the overall ad spend. So people are spending, let's say, 30% of the time on mobile devices, media time, just browsing content. But they're only seeing 20% of the ad spend. So what that tells me is there's a massive gap. And this gap is about $16 billion opportunity for essentially brands to have more mobile ads on the internet. The other thing that's happening is, and we all know this, but I'm going to say it anyway, within the next several months, it's probably already happening right now, is the dollars that are spent on internet ads are starting to eclipse dollars that are spent on television. What that tells me is it indicating a huge opportunity for mobile products to soak up the shift, right? And so these are some of the things that are happening. There are quite a few other things that are happening in the world of digital, and this is absolutely true. There's the ad duopoly, which means Google and Facebook control 85% of the growth in online ads, and their share is increasing every year. Since more data and impressions keep helping these companies improve their targeting, you know, it really is becoming very, very hard, really impossible. Um, it's an existential problem, I call it, and we're going to talk about this a little more. Um, uh, you know, eventually, uh, it's becoming harder and harder for other platforms and really any other publisher to compete. And and that's the thing. So there's this ad duopoly, and it's not going to go away. It's actually going to get even worse. And and the other aspect of that is this whole thing called ad blocking. You know, it's 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 skyrocketing. And you know, people don't want to see ads, right? Which is the which is the glue and the oil of the internet that powers all of digital media. And so in developing markets where data costs can be high, what users are doing is they're increasingly blocking ads whenever they can, right? Nearly 400 million people around the world are blocking mobile ads. And that's a problem. So, you know, big platforms like Facebook, Google, Snap, you know, they're responding to advertisers um, seeking to prove return on investment on their ad spend uh, by improving ad targeting relevance, right? So the ads that are people are going to see, so hopefully they don't uh, block these ads because the ads are more relevant to what they want to see. And and then measuring, uh, uh, you know, uh, the measurement of uh, how these ads work. So so targeting is has become a huge thing, right? Uh, the other thing that's going on is 
um, this whole aspect of driving purchases, like uh, purchases, like commerce. So Facebook and Google um, are, the, you know, the, the big platforms are using, uh, you know, the, the increasing willingness, people's willingness to buy online to earn revenue through ads for products. And so digital media publishers, when you're thinking about writing content, you got to think about, you know, uh, what the users want to do, which is essentially to purchase and transact and learn about, you know, products and then be able to transact online. The other thing, the other side of this that's, that's, that's interesting is this shift, um, towards what I call foot traffic, which is, you know, digital media publisher, Google Nextdoor, Foursquare, Uber, you know, location aware ads, they're starting to appear now. And that's the trend in the industry. So when you're actually publishing ads and content um, for a brand or for a publisher, you know, think about, you know, users in your store, how can you effectively influence purchases um, so that they read something on your website and they actually go to a store and make a purchase. And so those kinds of things are happening. In fact, it, it is even more um, interesting because what Google is doing is now starting to target by your images. So following Google's success with AdWords, you know, based on what you type, right? That's sort that's Google's business. Snap, for example, is now succeeding with ads based on the images that you share, right? So it's really interesting to see that 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 dynamic that's that's taking place. I mean, ads are repurposed from content shared by users or social media. So user influencer generated content are making great ads. It's not ads that are produced by agencies and, um, you know, and, and publishers, but, or brands. It's really ads that are repurposed from content that's shared by users or social media influencers, and they perform better, right, than content that's created by, you know, by brands. The other thing that's going on is um, image recognition, right? I mean, this is a big thing. And now you have this thing with iPhone X face recognition. Image recognition and camera apps uh, what they're doing is they're allowing um, ad platforms to know what you're doing uh, or what, what what you're looking at, let's say, and and they're they, they're able to serve more ads. So these are ads based on what you're looking at, right? It's all about trying to figure out you know what what you're doing and what your interests are. That's the game. That's the game of digital media. The other thing when you think about it's not just vision; it's actually also voice, right? It's voice recognition. Um, accuracy is improved. And and what's interesting, what people don't realize, is 20% of all mobile searches now are made with voice. Uh, well, voice devices like, for example, Amazon Echo are exploding in popularity and breadth with, I don't know, 10 or 11 million Echoes are already installed in the United States. So those are some of the dynamics. And the customer service, um, when you think about it from that perspective, let's see an e-commerce player, the customer service is actually shifting to the chat. There's a rapid rise in in the the percentage of customer service conversations that are happening via real-time online chat instead of phones. And as, 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 as users demand, you know, faster response times and wider access, um, you know, there's a direct-to-consumer uh, effort right. uh, that's, that's happening. Right. I mean, you're, people are focusing on community and content marketing or, you know, a, a narrow selection of great products. And, you know, there's new brands which are disrupting these old industries in technology, pet care, beauty, you know, shoes, um, and e-commerce is happening, right? So a lot of the publishers are starting to get into e-commerce. Ziv Davis, you know, e-commerce is a big, big play uh, for us. And, you know, we're a big affiliate for Amazon, for example. And, you know, think about Amazon. Amazon Prime and, and other online retailers, I mean, it's not just Amazon, Best Buy, for example, they've caused the package and parcel shipping volume to grow 9% this year. I mean, that's phenomenal, right? And it's not just shipping of products. 
but when you when you're developing content as a publisher, think think about think about things like delivery services. I mean, delivery services like food delivery, right? That's skyrocketing. Um, they've grown the percentage of revenue from delivery for one restaurant or two restaurants. And I hate to interrupt, but 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 so so given all of this, for people who are trying to publish. Whether it's media companies or or the CMO inside a corporation, what does this mean? What are the what are the practical implications of this? Well, when you when you're trying to publish something, right, you got to understand what you're publishing and why you're publishing too, right? And what is happening with the consumer that will read your articles or consume your product, right? Think about it this way. Um, in the milliseconds it takes for a web page to load, dozens of companies you probably never heard of are bidding in a furious auction to serve you an ad, right? That's the business of digital media. And that's just one area. That's called programmatic advertising. So, you know, digital advertising is doing great. I mean, you know, but the fact is that it's a... When you try to publish, you have to understand that it's a fragmented ecosystem you're publishing to, and it's a very convoluted supply chain. And there are issues that now plague that sector. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you through all of those issues one by one. So as you think about publishing, you have to address these issues. And I can offer some resolutions as well. Obviously, I'm not Yoda and I can't offer um, um, you know, everything. And I don't have necessarily have answers to everything. But I can tell you some of the things we've been doing. These issues have implications for pretty much the entire industry, all the way from marketers to agencies, you know, tech intermediaries to publishers, and of course to us consumers. What I'm going to do is I'm going to force and rank these issues from the standpoint of their impact on the digital ecosystem to you as a publisher, let's say. Although digital media is not necessarily just about publishing. It's, you know, there's ad tech and there's a whole bunch of the seven, eight hundred companies in the middle. Um, and so I'm going to rank this from, um, you know, importance of, let's say, serious issues to critical issues to what I call existential issues. Right? Oh, existential issues. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, look, you know, and, and I'll talk about the Facebook, Google, you know, monopoly or duopoly. That's an existential issue. When 85% of advertising is going to just two players, that means that none, the others don't necessarily matter. I mean, the other 15% has maybe a thousand companies. Um, and we're just, you know, feeding it with the, with the bottom feeders. So anyway, let's, let's start with this. So that's an existential issue. There's a reason why publishers are falling off the vine, right? The first four issues are either, you know, between constituents, I call them transparency, header bidding, and I'll talk about what these are. And they're universal problems that will eventually get solved via technology or consolidation, things like measurement or latency. A big issue is privacy, um, you know, tracking. And that's a big one with consumer groups, especially in Europe. Um, but let's stick to North America. Let's start with transparency. When, you, when you're publishing content, think about Think about these things in your head. Think about the issues of transparency, issues of measurement, issues of latency, things like header bidding when you're making money, privacy tracking, um, viewability, fraud, you know, ad blocking, uh, the issue of walled gardens, which is what Apple has done, um, you know, the issue of fragmentation. So let's talk about the critical issues, right? The first issue is viewability. Viewability is an online advertising metric, and basically what it is, it's aiming to track only the impressions, these are ad impressions, that can actually be seen by users. For example, if an ad is loaded at the bottom of a web page, but a user doesn't scroll down far enough to see it, 
that impression would basically be deemed not viewable, right? I mean, viewability is designed to let advertisers pay only for the ads that users could possibly see. And so, in, sure, in an honest system, that's that's what you want. So, so well, that's so I'm exactly. So I'm actually coming to that now to assess the impact of viewability with fraud and ad blocking. Consider the life cycle of a media impression. Right, this little ad impression. Every load of a web page or video creates an ad opportunity. Right. However, the ad blocking, which is now you know estimated at over twenty two percent, I think, in North America, and is higher in other countries, it prevents ads from being served to a person or consumer. Now, off the ads that are served, off the ads that are served, some are seen by bots. These are the machines that are recording fraudulent impressions. And another portion is delivered to humans, but not seen. So think about the profundity of that. So whether an ad is viewable or not depends on the viewability standards that vary by platform. And there's no common standard. So that's the other problem. So when you're actually developing content and, and you want advertisers on it and you want basically the content to be seen, you know, everything is different. For example, YouTube counts 30 seconds as a view. Facebook is three seconds and Snapchat is one second, right? And so all the ads actually viewed, a very small proportion of these instigates engagement by consumers. And an even smaller portion results in a conversion. So these two last elements are primarily relevant to uh, for, for, for direct, you know, response advertising, whereas the brand advertising's objective is what? It's to help build demand generation or preference over time and may benefit from an impression alone. So if you analyze these issues from an economic perspective, there is significant value leakage in digital media. And that's half the problem. See, marketers, they lost value. You know, is, is the sum of fraud and non-viewable impressions. Now, in both instances, they paid for an ad, right? And that was never seen by a potential consumer. So publishers, on the other hand, lose even more. They lose the value from both fraud and ad blocking. So while I don't purport to have solutions, as I said, to all of these issues, I would suggest that whatever solutions um, are applied, be done so with the consideration of the principles of marketing equation, the marketer and the consumer. And then ad blocking, which is a seminal issue in this industry, and on ad blocking in particular, I believe that the best way to prevent further proliferation of such ad blocking software downloads is to create a better consumer experience. And I, I can't stress this enough. While I sympathize with the publisher's predicament and value the economic construct that supports journalism, I mean, forcing the consumer's hand with, honestly, draconian measures is not the way to go. Consumer choice is here to stay. It's not going away. So the trend towards performance metrics and advertising serves to mitigate some of these issues, right? So when marketers are paying for business outcomes and not proxies like impressions, it alleviates many ills from measurement to fraud, right? So as a, as a digital media company, think about those things. Look, if the marketer is not paying based on impressions, it's irrelevant that impressions are not seen, right? I mean, this is a natural. So, so, so Anurag, but that's, yes, of course, but how do we get to the point? What are the kind of uh, relationships, deals, metrics that marketers can use to pay, therefore, for digital effort for business outcomes rather than just 
views? Well, Facebook is actually starting to do this a little bit. And, and, and let, me lay, let me lay the landscape out um, in terms of how Facebook is doing it compared to how Google is doing it compared to how Yahoo does it. Because Facebook is doing a very good job with this. Um, it's a CPA model, right? Um, companies that are deploying the, these models are essentially seeing higher rates of growth. So in performance advertising, think about it from this perspective. Think about if you draw a you know, a, a chart and on the left side, you have the y-axis and the y-axis, you have scale, right? On the, on the x-axis, you have, let's say, automation, right? And, and you have this, um, I'm almost doing it in my head right now. And you have this, you have this arrow that's sort of going up and right at the bottom, which is, you know, low automation, low scale are companies like Yahoo. And I'm not kicking Yahoo. I'm just saying it's just how it is. All right. Those are CPM bases, cost per thousand, just good old advertising, you know. Uh, spots and dots and then somewhere in the middle is google google is sort of middle level automation and i would say you know a good amount of scale it's a middle level scale and that's a cpc it's cost per click hey you know you click you're going to click on something and then you know it goes there and you it, you know it tra- results in a transaction then that's fantastic right the problem is that you got to click on something and if the viewability is low or if it's bot or if it's fraud or there's ad blocking then what are you going to click on i mean the human is not even seeing it right so the cpc model is also sort of iffy the facebook model is an interesting model it just takes away all of this and facebook is very high on the automation uh, 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 axis and it's very high on the scale axis and that's a cpa model it's all CPA. It's cost per acquisition. Nobody pays Facebook un- unless it performs, right? So think about doing CPA-based you know, advertising because just how the way uh, it works. And that, that could become a commerce play as well because now you have content that you're actually writing that will allow somebody to go to the brand's website and maybe convert there because you've educated them enough on your website. And so you brought them in funnel, a little funnel, you take them to the advertiser's website and they convert over there and you get a piece of that pie, right? And so those are, those are, those are important things. There are other issues like, you know, the walled garden, which I think we talked about, you know, that relates to this Google Facebook monopoly. And the reason that CPC and CPA are the name of digital advertising and digital media now, and pretty much the only guys who are doing it correctly, and even Google is going up the food chain now into the Facebook territory now with the whole CPA model. It's the duopoly. It's just those two guys. And that's why they're getting 80, 90% of the entire, you know, revenue and investment, right? So think about, think about the walled gardens of content from the nineties, right? What Facebook and Google have done is, and this is what, this is learning. This is what the other digital media publishers need to learn. Facebook and Google have put up walled gardens of data, right? The walled gardens are no surprise. Right, because obviously they have tremendous first-party data assets and reach, which enable them to effectively target consumers and deliver high ROI to advertisers. And so, what they're doing is they're extending this advantage across third-party apps. And so, for publishers, they should consider doing that as well. And these are third-party apps and sites to further to further their dominance with the additional benefit of not degrading. This is important. Their owned and operated properties with more ads. So a lot of the publishers, like you know, Condé Nast, New York Times, or you know, even Ziff Davis, um, are, are are starting to do things like that, or or should do more of that. Because think about Google, right? What has Google done? It's not tarnishing. You know, Google has double click. It also has ad mob, 
right? Which are these extensions. Facebook has Facebook, we call it fan. It's Facebook audience network. It extends it to that. That way they keep Facebook clean. It has Atlas by, by Facebook. A lot of people don't know that. When you place an ad, it goes there as well. It has LiveRail, which is another extension, right? So obviously this begs the question, will other companies with significant uh, first-party data, right? Large publishers, for example, um, joint, which are not making a lot of money and, you know, pretty low on the EBITDA margin as well. Will these other publishers and other companies, you know, join Facebook and Google as a third walled garden? Now, this is interesting. With a sizable subscriber base and, you know, recent acquisitions, uh, everybody's saying Verizon, um, which now owns, you know, AOL, Millennial Media, HuffPost, and, you know, all of that, Yahoo, may be a likely candidate. But, to date, I think, you know, this strategy has been extremely effective for Facebook and Google, um, but not necessarily for everybody else. So there's a learning lesson there. Um, I frankly think that Amazon is going to be the next third wall. And it's just a matter of when they're, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a $5 billion advertising business for them. And I, it's just a matter of they, them deciding that they want to do that. Now, a recent analyst study, as I said, uh, 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 suggests that the combined share of all incremental ad spend has exceeded 85%. Now, it's a frightening figure, honestly, for pretty much everybody else, all the thousands of companies that are vying for the remainder. That's why, Michael, I call this an existential issue. Finally, finally, there's the, the when you think about from a digital media publishing perspective or just a digital media company perspective, there is this issue of fragmentation. And this is important. It's a condition that is really unsustainable for both the principals and the intermediaries. And let me explain that. Marketers and publishers, two ends of the spectrum, they struggle with the complexity caused by the myriad of coin solutions in the industry. There's too many companies in the middle trying to take 10%, 5%, 15%. I mean, it is horrible. And for these intermediaries, it's a constant challenge to differentiate and grow with so much competition, right? Which has led to what I call a pullback in venture funding. So what, what the industry is begging is consolidation. Now, these issues are major issues, but obviously some of them continue to garner more attention, such as, you know, header bidding, for example, is a big thing. And I'll explain what that is. In fact, not just header bidding, I would like to add what I call adverse context into this list. It's a culmination of what I call fake news and brand safety issues into this mix, which is a big story this year, as obviously, you know, uh, everybody knows. What one could initially dismiss as a simple hack, um, header bidding has turned out to be a lot more. It's really fundamentally changing the economics and relationships across the programmatic ecosystem in digital media. And it's a major disruptive force. This is what header bidding is. It's, you know, some people call it advanced bidding or pre-bidding. It's an advanced um, programmatic technique wherein publishers, um, you know, these guys who are writing all this content, publishers offer inventory to multiple ad exchanges simultaneously before making a call to the ad servers, right? So the idea is that by letting multiple demand sources bid on the same inventory at the same time, the publishers increase their yield and they make more money. See, for publishers, you know, true programmatic efficiency is a bit like alien life. It's probably out there, but nobody's actually seen it, right? I mean, instead, what publishers to manage their, their, their programmatic yield um, thus far, what they do is they daisy chain it. It's a waterfall structure. The publisher offers impressions in one sales channel and the buyers are, you know, are not buying there. They push them down to another, less valuable channels. 
until someone makes a bid. Now, the system works, but it's highly fractured, and it's frankly inherently inefficient. So publishers say the system leaves money on the table. You don't want money on the table, right? So net-net, I think header bidding is a good thing. So a lot of the publishers and digital media ecosystem should adopt it. It accelerates the availability of high-quality inventory that will drive higher CPMs. The challenging aspect of header bidding, you know, there's always that, is the increased competition and tighter economics, which I believe will hasten consolidation in the sector. Now, the other thing when you're thinking about publishing content is privacy is an issue. It is an issue. And, and let me highlight that a little bit. You know, uh, there's this thing called general data protection regulation. It's called GDPR, which is essentially a, a European, it's going to enter North America at some point. It's a European data protection regulation that'll go, go into effect in, in 2018. GDPR, mark my words, will have a material impact on how companies manage consumer data. It's predicated to have, um, you know, like I, I would say one of two, 50% of the companies will be underprepared for this profound shift, right? So earlier on, I mean, a few minutes ago, I talked about this life cycle of a media impression, which is really to highlight the challenges of fraud, unviewable inventory, and ad blocking. Now, marketers are taking a stand and demanding that we see changes to these issues. The marketers are doing it. Right? So it's no surprise because viewability standards are very inconsistent across the major platforms. As I said, now there's this company called the Media Rating Council, MRC in our industry. You know, They've basically said the video, because video is huge now, because you're a publisher, you produce video. Video viewability standards, right now desktop on a you know, good old computer is 50% in view at two seconds, and mobile is 50% view in two seconds. So it's consistent. This is MRC, which is the Media Rating Council. Facebook has its own. Facebook says no. Desktop is 100% in view for three seconds. And mobile is 50% in view for three seconds. YouTube says its own. It says 100% in view for at least 30 seconds or to completion, whichever is shorter. Right? I mean, Twitter has its own. It says 100% in view for three seconds. And then you have Snapchat, which is 100%. In there's, a, there's, a, there's another company that we use that's uh, five seconds fully in view. The, so the video window has to be in view for five seconds, or the user has to click inside it to count as a view. Snapchat, I mean, Snapchat is 100% in view upon start, right? Instagram is the same thing. In feed, in Instagram, they're, they're saying 100% in view for three seconds. Um, and there are stories, which is Instagram stories. Instagram stories is 100% in view upon start. So look, this is an issue. This is an issue. Brand safety, which is, which is important, has become an issue. Now, it's it's gotten more attention with the recent obviously with the recent struggles surrounding you know Facebook and YouTube's platforms, all the fake advertising and fake news and extremist content and all that. But the world's largest advertisers are pulling spend from these platforms. So while there are others are boycotting them because um, all these issues need to be resolved. Now obviously Facebook and YouTube are working quickly. They want to clean up the platforms and obviously win back the trust, right? Now one of the reactions to adverse context in the sector has been the rise of premium publisher consortia. Now, this is interesting. Like major publishers, traditional and digital, they're banding together and they're offering advertisers aggregated premium inventory with large scale across their properties. So if you're a publisher and you're sort of falling between the cracks, this is something they probably want to join. For example, in the TV world, you have this thing called OpenAP, which is Fox, Turner, and Viacom. Fox, Turner, Viacom, they've combined together and they say, we have this consortia, we call it OpenAP. In the digital world, there are two. 
The first one is called Concert. Concert is a combo of Condé Nast, NBC Universal, and Vox Media. They basically said, you know, we're going to go in as one and as as a consortium called Concert. Uh, the other one, which is a much larger one, is called Trust X. What Trust X is a whole bunch of large publishers like NBC Universal. You have the Weather Company. You've got Condé Nast, The Guardian, Washington Post in there, Purchase in there. You know, Slate, Time Inc., Daily Caller, Vox Media, Scripps. I mean, I'm just, you know, Financial Times is in there. There's Hearst in there. Uh, there's AccuWeather in there. Meredith is in there. Edmunds, Atlantic Media, Business Insider. I mean, every Fox is in there. I don't know, Fox News is in there. CBS Corporation, ESPN. So this is a big consortium. It's called TrustTex. So what the industry needs, what you as a digital media publisher need, is, is valid third-party measurement where... You know, all the major platforms cannot grade their own homework, right? There are standards that are being set by these independent third parties, like the Media Research Council that I said, MRC, and it's one second 50% in view standard, while technology vendors are being leaned on to push consistency across the industry. So even with standards in place, like the MRC viewability standard, we should be asking ourselves, are we measuring the right thing? Do you feel... You're getting any value from these standards. Should we be focusing on something that has more to do with engagement? See, I believe we're on an inevitable march away from proxies and more towards understanding where consumers are spending time, right? How they are engaging and ultimately driving business outcomes, right? So, and I, I talk about this whole duopoly. I keep bringing back because it's like, you know, it's hitting me in the face every single day in my business because it's true. You know, 70, 80% of the traffic in all the publishing businesses is coming from these two guys, from Google, Facebook. So, you know, and now it's going to be Amazon. We have to talk about Facebook and what makes Facebook such a powerful platform and how can advertisers take advantage of it in the best possible way? That's whatever, that's what everybody cares about, right? Facebook, I mean, it's just a matter of putting in, you know, people boost their ads and they, they do obviously Facebook offers a lot of metrics and there's lots of third party companies that do that. And it's the largest player in the market. So if you're a publisher, I mean, a lot of them have what they call Facebook instant articles. So Facebook has invited, you know, publishing community to come and publish within Facebook. What Facebook is saying is I, Facebook, am the internet. You don't need to be on the internet. I am the internet. You come within me because I have all the audiences in the world. I have the world is on it. Probably the whole world is on it now. And I know who these people are. It's not just these are bots. We kind of know who these people are because they have accounts with us, right? And they're active on us and they're, they're on it on us at least once a day. And so you advertise and we're going to give you the targeting and we can target hyper local and you can target in Jersey City if you want. You can target in, you know, Omaha, Nebraska. I mean, anywhere you want against any demographic and any hyper-local target. And it's easy. It's self-serve. You can do it on your own. You don't need a brand agency. You don't need you know, a DMP, which is a demand management platform. You don't need any of these technologies. Facebook has done it for you. You as a user can actually literally take an ad, create you know, a piece of content, and you can boost it on Facebook, and you can reach consumers, and that's what's happening. And so large advertisers building these huge platforms called Facebook pages on Facebook, and they're inviting their audiences, and, and Facebook audiences targeting as inviting audiences to actually come in there and participate in this whole ecosystem that they've built. And of course, 
it extends to customer service. You know, because these are real people and not bots. And if people have a problem, they'll go onto the page and they'll basically say, you know, I bought so and so and it broke down or this and that. And I call customer service and it sucks. I mean, things like that. And you can respond to it. So how do you take care? You know, it, you got to build a presence on Facebook. You, if you're not, there are companies who don't even have their own websites, small businesses, their websites are Facebook pages. That's good enough because that's where the audience is. So that's what I'm saying. You know, Facebook is how do you take advantage of it is to actually go in there. And, and start to play around with it and, and talk to experts who uh, can help you develop uh, uh, an, you know, a whole presence on Facebook and, and be able to uh, capture audience data from it and then target ads and target content and, and hone in on the content and make sure that your audience is reading what you're actually peddling to them because that's important because you can put content out there nobody's reading and you'll know that, right? If you're a traditional publisher... Oftentimes you have to use metrics like, you know, Omniture and a whole bunch of, you know, Google Analytics to figure out what to do. On Facebook, they just provide it to you. So that's why it's so attractive. Now, now, this is the important thing because, and this is what I want people to understand. Amazon, Amazon, this is it. Amazon, it's all Amazon, man. Amazon is playing a different game. See, Facebook says, I know who you are, right? Google says, I know what you might be looking for. What Amazon says is, I know what you bought. And what you will buy next. And that's where the rubber hits the road. It's important stuff, right? Uh, and that's the play. So I think Amazon is going to be the next wall garden. And Facebook and Google, obviously, they have the demographic data. They got the proxies for intent. Amazon, instead, has true intent. It has purchase history data to understand the full customer journey. Amazon has unique data position in this ecosystem. And that's who we want. And at some point, Amazon is going to lit up light up and it's going to be huge in this in this in, in this whole in this whole ecosystem so that's what i'd like to 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 leave you guys with wow that is that is pretty extraordinary um so you think um, amazon eventually will light up an advertising network for content or a social network something that takes advantage of all of this data mm -hmm. absolutely it's bound to happen it's bound to happen you know that's 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 definitely the case there's one other thing i want to leave um, your audiences with Michael. You know, everybody is getting into programmatic and the internet is all about, you know, data and everything else. Here's the thing, though. It's all about building a brand, right? Building a strong brand. Like PC Mag is a 30-year-old strong brand. It is the imprimatur. When PC Mag says this product is great, people believe it. And so building a strong brand is not easy. The most recognized and iconic media brands were built from a unique voice, history, and frankly, many other intangibles. So the New York Times, Vox Media, you got the Wall Street Journal, Vice, Business Insider, The New Yorker, BuzzFeed, Vogue, Financial Times. I mean, these are strong brands and they're a powerful asset because you know why? Because they are less vulnerable to ecosystem changes in monetization and the winds of programmatic as well as algorithm changes and the frankly the whims of major distribution platforms like facebook google and twitter so i envision the publisher value matrix the digital media value matrix with two lenses the want to know and the need to know properties while there are large publishers of you know general interest or let's call it want to know content, there are others with scale and the need to know content that have a material advantage. You know, even small publishers like Niche Focus, you know, B two B travel media company, um, Skift, for example, they can build loyal 
lucrative audiences and and you know by effect obviously a strong defensible position so if small publishers don't deliver quality content they will face a challenging future so it's very important that 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 be the case you know i'm witnessing some interesting developments unfold like buzzfeed for example is finding success with its new standalone food food brand it's called tasty and it's building a blueprint to start more vertical properties. Vox Media has gone pursued the strategy, right? It's a vertical strategy. They've built and acquired a family of verticals to you know address all kinds of content and engage audiences, right? I mean, Vox has what? I mean, in B2C, they got The Verge, Vox, SB Nation. They've got Eater, Curbed, Rack, Zcode, Skip. I mean... Ziv Davis is in the same thing. It's all vertical publishing. We've got a whole bunch, and I, you know, right at the beginning of this uh, this conversation, I named all the brands, right? And then we acquired Everyday Health, and we have some fantastic brands in healthcare in Everyday Health. So ultimately, publishers can build a loyal following and direct relationships with their audiences. They will have a wide variety of monetization opportunities beyond advertising. This is important, beyond advertising. And these are the five things you're going to think about in digital media. One, advertising, traditional. Two, subscription, traditional. It's newspapers, now it's online. Three, events. Think about that. Four, affiliate, which is commerce. How can I educate the audience and then be able to handhold them and take them to, let's say, Best Buy or Amazon or other e-tailers and have them transact there and then get, let's say, a piece of that pie? And finally, it's lead gen. Lead gen is huge. Lead gen is a huge part of the internet because the audience is coming to you, Mr. Digital Media Publisher. And so, you know, you got to figure out who these audiences are and how can you, how can you, how can you qualify these, these audiences? In Jim Davis, we call it HQL, which is a high quality lead business. And then you can, you can, um, you can offer these, these audiences as a high quality lead to the brand, uh, which obviously wants to reach, uh, these, uh, these companies. Gus Speckdash from Twitter has an important question, and that is, uh, where does, what is the role these days of influencers? Where is that going? And how do you prevent corruption uh, among those influencers? Uh, we have only a few minutes, so very quickly, uh, please share with us your thoughts on influencers. There's good influencers and bad, just like there's good humans and bad, right? It's just how it is. It's the nature of us as human beings. I mean, we're not robots and we're not all programmed to be just completely honest. It's just how it works. So it'll always be influencers who will get paid. And indirectly, a lot of the brands are actually starting to approach them and try to convince them that they can pay them for, you know, yeah, we're going to pay $500 and put this tweet out. Now that happens, you know, don't get me wrong, that happens. In fact, the largest influencers on the internet, the large gaming influencers with like 40, 50 million audiences and subscribers, they do this for a living. I mean, that's, this is how it works. But there are lots of influencers that are, they don't do this for money. Like you can't, I mean, I'm not necessarily an influencer, but I do have a following on LinkedIn, but whatever I put out there, even if it's about a brand, you know, I don't get paid for it. I don't want to get paid for it, right? I don't want to, I'm not a shill for somebody. And so there are a lot of influencers out there who are like that. But economics is an important thing. I mean, you know, if, if at some point the economics becomes so big that they just can't refuse the money, then that's, you know, that's obviously the, the thing that one has to, to think about. And there are lots and lots of companies at the end of the day, which, uh, you know, companies are influencers, right? I mean, you know, Ziff Davis is an influencer because it's influencing audiences, influences people, helping them make buying decisions, right? That's the business that Ziff Davis is in, as PC Mag is in it. 
but we're not shields for any, anybody. We are church and state. We are the imprimatur. We're like the Vatican. We're the last word in quality reviews of content. So there's, you'll always find, you know, the entire spectrum of, of companies, influencers, um, and they come in all shapes and sizes. So it's really up to you. And frankly, and here's the thing, the internet is, is very, uh, transparent now. It takes not a, you know, just a few minutes to figure out if somebody's gotten paid to write something. Um, and so if you're an influencer and you're thinking about, you know, getting paid for peddling products, don't do it. Because at some point, people will know that you're doing it and, um, you know, then nobody's going to listen to you. So that's my advice. Okay. So in the, in the final analysis, transparency rules. Transparency comes out. Absolutely. Okay. Well, that has been a very fast 45 minutes. Uh, went by in a flash. Anurag Harsh, you are a top exec with Ziff Davis. And thanks so much for joining us and sharing your, your experience in publishing and digital media for listening. I am Michael Craigsman. You have been watching episode number 263 of CXO Talk. Next Friday, a week from today, we are speaking with the CEO of Century 21. It's uh, the largest real estate brokerage brand in the world. And we're thrilled to welcome, and we're going to be, we're, we're thrilled to welcome their CEO, Nick Bailey. And we will be talking about changes in the real estate market driven by data, driven by Zillow, and folks like that. Everybody, thanks so much for watching, and uh, hope you have a great day. Bye-bye. <laughs>